Kasada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Jihei Kim. She joins us from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where currently she's the chef and owner of Miss Kim. Food and Wine Magazine named Kim as a best new chef in 2021. She grew up in South Korea, and it's that upbringing that shapes her cuisine. Today, we'll be discussing using history to break stereotypical ideas, what it's like deep diving into historical cookbooks and piecing together all that research and those classic flavors onto a current menu, going with the flow of life, a quick story on timing and the beauty of what can happen when you clear expectations from your mind, and Buddhism and the art of Korean temple food, how the mind and body are deeply connected to the food that we eat. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Kim, have you eaten yet? Now, this could be a meal from today, or it could be the last meal that you have a really great memory about. It could be one from 10 years ago or any time, one that truly resonated with you. Uh, I have eaten today. <laughs> I've had the usual chef's, um, I guess, a mid-shift meal, which is just a lot of tastings of stuff. Today, we're catering for 100 people lunch uh, for a neighborhood uh, a restaurant, uh, a friend. Um, so I think I've had a boiled potato. And some rice, uh, little little spoonfuls of rice, and then um, gochujang marinated and roasted chicken, but only the oysters because when you roast thighs, the oysters fall out, and it's perfect bite to taste to make sure that everything's okay. The oyster part is like the tiny little uh, round part that's attached to the uh, thighs, and when I marinate it uh, in gochujang sauce, it's like. It's extra moist and extra salty because it's a smaller piece of meat. And when I uh, roast it in the oven, that's the part that sort of like hangs on the side. So it's irresistible uh, bite of piece, uh, 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 that piece of food that I just like go in with my fingers and then test it to make sure everything's okay for people who's going to eat the lunch. Awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that is definitely typical. I mean, <laughs> that is everyone, uh, a typical mid-shift meal tasting what's happening in this kitchen. Let me just get a quick taste. Uh, and I love that. I love that when you're at work, you're in the middle of everything. And at some points, you know, like it could be a hard day when you just haven't eaten breakfast, haven't eaten anything. And that one little morsel it's like all right that gives me two more hours of energy you know absolutely and it's sort of hilarious because i make a point of making sure that the staff has time to actually eat a proper meal instead of eating over garbage but i am very very bad at living what i'm preaching so for myself i'm eating like a bite of here a bite of there as i'm cooking but the staff gets to sit down and eat a proper meal Right. <laughs> well, let's stay on your restaurant, Miss um, Kim. And, you know, before opening Miss Kim, I found it very interesting when I was researching you that you wanted to know how your ancestors cooked. I read that you started collecting 
republished versions of cookbooks from roughly the 14th to the 18th centuries. So tell me about the process of A, tracking these down, reading them, and the research that influenced your menu the most. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lot of it came about because I'm not a classically trained chef. And classically trained in Western sense of the world would be like, I would be learning a lot about French mother sauces. And that's not the food that I wanted to make. Um, And even though my mother is an amazing cook, and she made a lot of things from scratch that most mothers probably wouldn't, especially these days, I just felt that that was just not enough. It was like missing a part of story. And I'm also an immigrant, right? So I'm sort of searching for my identity, especially like having landed uh, serendipitously in Midwest, uh, where there is not a huge Asian population compared to the coast. So as a part of education, I started looking at a lot of cookbooks. And as I was looking at a lot of cookbooks, I, you know, I love stories and I love learning about history. So it was sort of a naturally came about that I started reading about like, oh, this recipe is from 18th century palace cooking. And I was like, okay, where I where would I find this 18th century palace cooking? And I'm lucky enough to still read Korean. So through the power of internet, I started searching for this. Um, and And so it becomes like multi-week process. So <laughs> I would... I would just look out for anything cookbook related stuff. And then once I found one cookbook, actually the very first historical cookbook I found uh, was in New York. There was a tiny little cookbook, uh, tiny little bookstore on 32nd street. um, And they had this old, old uh, kind of out of print book from like eighties or nineties. That was a reprint of an 18th, 17th century cookbook. And I happened to grab it and flip through it. And then I was just totally hooked. So I bought that book on the spot. And then I started looking for more books like that on the internet. And there is like a sort of um, online bookseller, not too different from Amazon in Korea. So they had a, a US version of it that was not as nicely designed. But I would order it and then they would place an order to Korea and then it would be sent and then like a month after I ordered I would get some um, either that or I would call in every favorite that I can think of through my uh, sister-in-law's sister's friend and then have them ship, <laughs> have them ship it from Korea um, it's it's actually wonderful that there's enough interest in historical cooking in Korea that these are not super difficult to find especially if you have interest for it and if you're in korea it's just sort of difficult because you're shipping from korea and with the pandemic it almost became impossible so it's it's all about just calling in personal favors at this point (laughs) that that's quite the journey um and i can see going down that rabbit hole, like kind of getting hooked to it. Cause it's so fascinating. You're, you're about to open your restaurant. Your mind is racing. You want to get in touch with what was happening back then. And I can totally see that. Um, what would you say if you had to narrow down maybe one or two things that whether it was on your first menu or it continues to stay with your menus, what influenced you the most, at least back then? that you learned from one of those cookbooks? 
I think it's um it's not necessarily a recipe or a dish. It's just that when I started reading a lot more of these historical cookbooks, I I started finding these uh, recipes that looked like blood sausage from Argentina or or Spain. It looked like Murcia to me. Or or I'd find something. I read the description and I was like, okay, puffed rice held together with honey. What does this sound like? You know, you hold it together and then you cut it into squares. Sounds like Rice Krispies, but this was a recipe from like 17th century. So what I realized was that we're actually not a whole lot different. Like I found recipes for head cheese that like if you took away garlic and maybe scallions and then put like parsley in it, uh, it would be totally a French recipe. I found a recipe that sounded like exactly like ricotta. The recipe was kind of like take the cow, like cow's milk and throw in some sea uh, ocean water and then and then cook it and see if it curdles. If it doesn't curdle, then throw in a little vinegar. I was like, that's ricotta. So what drives, um, like the one idea that influenced me deeply from the beginning of opening the restaurant is that, that the food and authenticity is not a dogma. It's a, a kind of a fluid story that uh, moves with the people that makes the food and enjoy the food. And that, uh, that gives me sort of like a validation that I, you know, I, as an immigrant, like I'm not living in Korea. So if I lived in Korea, the, the food story would have been different. If I, I'm my, my family's in New, New Jersey. So if I were in New Jersey and stayed in New Jersey, then I think the restaurant menu may have looked different. But now I find myself in Michigan and it's okay to continue to see the commonality between different people and different region and then kind of sort of add like a next sentence or two of the ongoing flow of the flow of the story of Korean food. So I think that idea of it is more grounded in our restaurant than like a particular recipe. Yes, I love that. I also enjoyed, and you you started to touch on this with the ricotta, so I want you to kind of expand. Um, when I was researching, I enjoyed your research and and how it breaks down these stereotypical ideas and how liberating that's been for you. So kind of like with the ricotta, if you could expand on some of those for our listeners and talk about tearing away those preconceived notions. Yes, absolutely. Um so the most essential dish that Korean people feel the most fired up about would be kimchi. And this uh, fermented dish, um, I think the, the most uh, popular version would be made with Napa cabbage, right? So, um, and this is like taken in as a Bible. There is like national news made every fall about the price of uh, Napa cabbage kimchi. I think when the Korean government had an opportunity to go do a space program, first thing they did is try to see if they can freeze dry kimchi, Napa cabbage kimchi to take it. Yeah, it's a, we're very cute. (laughs) Um, uh, But as I researched into it, I realized Napa cabbage was not the cabbage of choice of making kimchi. It has only been about 100 years, maybe 110, because Napa cabbage is not native to Korea. It comes in from China, 
maybe like turn of the century uh, from 19th to 20th century, right? So before it had a different kind of cabbage was being used. And uh, it was it looked more like a really big bok choy rather than like a dense leafy napa cabbage, right? And wow. most, most most Korean people do not know that that it's that recent. And then if you dug more deeply into it, um, you don't see the chili flakes being introduced to napa cabbage until like 18th century or even 19th century because the you know chili. Pep- chili peppers are not native to Korea. It's native to Latin America. It comes into 17th century, but you don't really see in cookbooks until 18th or 19th century. And before that, it looked more like sauerkraut because it was more salt-cured thing. And um, so, like, then this national dish, I mean, I think you can go to Pizza Hut and then get kimchi or at least some sort of pickled vegetables in Korea. It shows up in every single table. It's this essential thing that we think that it's like a, um, almost like that's what it is. That's a, uh, if in order to have it authentic, this is like a narrow idea of what Napa cabbage kimchi is supposed to be. But then only 100 years ago, it looked different. And 200 years ago, it didn't have chili flakes. And maybe 300 years ago, it had like only salt and some garlic and ginger. Or maybe it had some fermented fish in it. So then you can sort of see how this uh, preservation technique changes and evolves over time. And then it evolves with uh, people adapting different ingredients into it. And then, and then now we're crazy about it. And like, we love the spices of the kimchi and we love the funkiness of the kimchi. But people don't really think about that's not how it looks not so long ago. Korea claims 5,000 years of history. So like 200 years is really not a lot. <laughs> that's fascinating and i can see how that could be liberating to you to discover this and say hey guys no yeah so what we understand as korean food right now is a snapshot of its old old story and the story just like goes it's bigger than us it's bigger than what we think traditional uh, and authentic korean food is it's just going to continue to evolve and i sort of like i love that idea there is a story of like uh, Korean people living in Russia and then gets uh, like vanquished to Central America, but they do have to still have kimchi. So then they make their own version of it using like spices like coriander seeds or cumin seeds. And um, because they're, they're using what's available to them. And I think that's beautiful. And I, it really resonates to me on a personal level because I am a transplant myself. And I am trying to make something of my own that feels authentic to me. Um, yeah, and it's okay to have a little bit of freedom, um, you know, with the caveat that you understand, you you did the work of understanding and, and do it justice, but it's not set in stone. You can do something with it. Yeah. No, oh, it's beautiful. And I, I do love that you have that freedom and almost it gives you that, uh, that ability and, and the involvement and the, the ever evolving cuisine, that's what we're all here for, right? That's what's really, you know, honoring, obviously honoring everything that has led up to that, but that freedom to evolve is like, Ooh, it's, it's, it's like the excitement I assume for you part of it to as being a chef. Yeah, you know? I mean chefs are chefs are creative people. And 
And, you know, having to re- replicate somebody else's uh, known as food is a, a huge pressure. And, and you sort of um, understanding the sort of history and the story of a dish or a cuisine gives you a good framework to work within but it also gives you enough creative freedom to put your stamp on it or your, your interpretation or take on it. Um, so I think over the years, um, looking at these cookbooks, I, I started generally um, setting boundaries for the food that we're doing at the restaurant. And it's been hugely gratifying. Mm. Well, it's a good transition, uh, kind of putting your stamp and your interpretation and your journey, because now I want to go into a quick story that brought you to another part of the world, (laughs) which I find really cool. Um, So I'm going to go back in time for a minute uh, before your restaurant was open. At this point, your application to partnership was about to be approved and your husband won a fellowship to study in Rome for one year, and you decided to join him. And you arrive, and you get involved with the Rome Sustainable Food Project, and your time there ends up shaping you and preparing you in some ways for your return to Michigan. And then when you get back to Ann Arbor, the space where your restaurant is now located becomes available, and as they say, the rest is history. But I found this really interesting because, Chef Kim, you decided to go with the flow, and that's not always easy. And as humans, we can get in our head, we can overthink things. And at that time, your application was about to be approved, and another person may have said, there's no way I can go to Rome. But going with the flow and not fighting it allowed you to expand as a chef And the timing worked out with a space becoming available a year later. So, Chef Kim, tell me about your thought process during that time. And also, please touch on the impact that Italy had on you as a chef. Absolutely. Um, uh, I want to say ex-husband now. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Well, it's all a part of a journey. That's a journey, right? We spent our year in Rome, and then that makes everything okay, and we're very cordial. But at the time, my husband then uh, won this uh, uh, prestigious uh, uh, fellowship at American Academy in Rome. And he very carefully asked me to come with him. And at the time, I'm like, not only am I about to open a restaurant, I already moved to Michigan for him. And now he wants me to put my dreams on hold and go to a foreign country that has nothing to do with Korean food for a man. And I was just like, no fucking way. No fucking way. Wow. This story just got <laughs> 10 times better. I'm really <laughs> loving all of this. That you, re- This really, you were going with a Big flow. Oh, bigger yeah. than I even thought. No, I was just like, it, it took me a long time to move to Michigan and, and from New Jersey. And then now, now you're asking me to go across the ocean. And so I was just like, no. And then I was like, well, Rome would be really lovely. And we're having difficult time finding space. But no, I can't. Like, I made commitments to my partners. Like, you know, the application's about to be approved. But it's pretty much, like, unless I really mess it up, like, it's pretty much 
agreed. Um, like I don't see any hiccups coming up. Um, so, but but then like he had me talk to people who went to the fellowship, and then I wasn't really convinced until I actually talked to another person who went to Rome Sustainable Food Project. So Rome, Rome Sustainable Food Project was the uh, dining program uh, put together with Alice Waters for the fellows at the American Academy in Rome. So that sort of like got me curious. And then when I talked to the person who's been through the program, I like my uh, greed for wanting to spend some time there increased. So then I actually went and talked to my uh, partner, Paul, like he's amazing and, and very supportive. And he basically said, we will continue to look for the space for you while you're gone. And it's really your choice. We're not going to stop you from going to Rome. It's not for a long time. It, like, you know, six months to a year is really not a huge chunk of time in this big span of things. It will be here. And I still felt this extreme guilt about like, it's some may say it's an American guilt about like just n- not working every day or it's also Korean right. guilt, also immigrant guilt. So I'm feeling all these things. Then I paused and said, like, Paul, what, what would you do if you're in my shoes? And then he said, I would go at a heartbeat. I would drop everything and go. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to just go. I'm just going to go. The restaurant will be here. And, and while I'm going, I'm going to try to uh, do justice by learning as much as I can. So I just went and... And when I went, it was just really, really incredibly life-changing. Well, you know, with all the same reasons that everybody finds like Italy and Rome life-changing, right? It's beautiful. The food is beautiful. People are beautiful. The language is beautiful. (laughs) And, And living there is gorgeous. But also because I really saw people cooking in a, a slightly different way. There was no recipes anywhere, uh, except for maybe biscotti. But but there was no set recipe or set menu, and they were working with the best farmers in and across, like in and around the room. And they would just bring stuff they had. Some of it wasn't even ordered. Like and like there are crates of like just foraged random greens. It was called Mysticanza because it was a mix of stuff. And then we would just have to deal with it. So there, I think the impact that it had on me was to really cook by looking at the ingredient and then deciding what to do based on the ingredient. So like maybe we had an idea of what the menu was going to be that lunch, but then the vegetables come in in different shape or, or different vegetable altogether comes in and we think on our feet and then still try to make it delicious. It forces you to really learn how to season um, and go beyond recipes and work with the seasonality and what's available. And I think the most important thing was it just felt like you're cooking for a huge party and they're invited to your dining room and and um, this just different sense of hospitality um, that I really wanted to recreate for the restaurant. And isn't that interesting 
perspective, right? You can look back now. I love looking back months, uh, years later and say, okay, and connecting those dots. So that's why I didn't go there for this man who's now my (laughs) (laughs) ex-husband. Like I went there because it was part of my journey. Like that's amazing. You spent a year in Rome. We would never, when you become a certain age, when you're in your 40s, we think we can't just drop things and go for a year somewhere. Yeah, you know? it's it's, actually, it's incredible. It's sort of hilarious because even though we went together, we sort of had a different Roman experience. Um, my Roman experience was spent in like walking. I loved walking in Rome. So instead of like taking public transportation or a taxi, I would just walk to markets. So I would spend an hour walking to different markets and then buying whatever ingredient that like gets me excited and then try cooking that or we would go to like, well, I would go to Florence and then hang out with the butcher there for a while. Or And in the meanwhile, he wasn't coming along with this, what I think is like the most amazing and fun, fun journey. He was having his own journey visiting churches and architecture. And then it's really, I think that's where we like saw our differences. So in all in all, I think it all worked out fine. <laughs> A thousand percent. Yes. <laughs> and I also love how you mentioned the guilt, um, which, yeah, I think you, you said it's it's American guilt. It's immigrant guilt. It's guilt on many things. It's it's almost societal, like probably American, I guess, overwhelmingly American when I think about it, because um, Italy, you're, you're right. <laughs> they <laughs> certainly don't have the same feeling, but it's true. It's that. I, I remember back in my 20s when um, Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, book, Eat, Prayed, Love, and mm-hmm. the movie of Julia Roberts, and I remember watching that. And I remember the line, the art of doing nothing. When she was in Italy, it was the art of doing nothing. And I forget the actually the phrase in Italian, but it was a beautiful phrase in Italian. And it was like, whoa, the art of doing nothing. She had to learn that. And that stuck with me. This is reminding myself. This is hilarious because I didn't even bother watching that movie because I was like, I roll. She can afford to go wherever, does not have to make living. Like who does that? Like that was my reaction. And then, you know, a few years later I'm doing the same thing. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> who does that? All right, I'll can, do it. Who I'll can do afford it. to do that? Who doesn't work every day? God, yeah. But, you know, doing the internship in the kitchen and just cooking without having to worry about P&L or, or like managing the staff or schedule, just having an hour of just blistering hands trying to clean artichokes was just you know, it's a bliss. It's a, it's a vacation. It is. Wow. Well, that's an incredible experience. So uh, yeah. And I, and I love that. I think you, you said his name was Paul, your partner. Yes. Yeah. Who told you to just go. Yes. Like he would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Sometimes you need that. You need someone who you value their opinion to say, I would do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. I think I I needed to hear it. Yeah. I need to hear that coming from somebody that I really respected, who was like the, one of the most hard, hardworking people I know. And he was just like, I'll go at a heartbeat. And I, I needed to hear that more than like, we'll support you. We'll be here. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be here for you, whatever you decide. Like I totally dismissed that part. But when he said, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll go at a heartbeat. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a right decision. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. COVID in a way 
dealing with all that stress of owning a restaurant during the pandemic, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're still in it on many levels, but, uh, the height of it, that 2020 was transformative for me because it was that reminder for me to embrace more of that behavior. Like life is to life is here. It's not, I don't know if it's too short or long. I don't know, but life is, and things change constantly. So if you have an opportunity, just go and do it. Yeah, absolutely. The 2020 was similar for me in a sense that like things felt hard, but besides all the different difficult hardship and pivoting and everything that I'm sure multiple of your uh, chef guests had already discussed 10 times over, um, it felt more clear. Like mm-hmm. it felt more clear what's important in life and sort of like letting go of that ego, like when you have mm-hmm. to pare down the menu so you're focused on survival of the restaurant and and you're focused on making sure you're taking care of the staff so they're not out of uh, out of uh, income. Um, things like that, like maybe I let go of some of the dishes that I care about, but then like that's maybe not as important as making sure everybody's safe. That's right. And again, it's a great time to go into dishes uh, because I'm not sure if this dish is currently on your menu. But in the past, you had a dish on your menu that was inspired by the eating habits of Korean monks. And I read that in the future, you'd like to open a smaller spot, perhaps, that focuses on the plant-based temple cooking of Korean Buddhists. So tell me about this journey and what's pulling you in this direction? <laughs> um, it's a combination of flavor and wanting to work with local farmers more, but also like a little bit of business smarts too, along with looking at historical cuisine. I started looking at many facets of Korean cuisine. A little factoid is that before I opened the restaurant, I had a, a food cart and I had a, a half Taiwanese partner who didn't work out. But because she was part Taiwanese and I was Korean and we couldn't really decide on the menu, we were doing Pan-Asian street food uh, inspired food cart. And it just didn't feel very authentic to me um, because I like I visited Taiwan, but it's difficult to say that that one visit like gave me any kind of authority or creative room to do anything with it. Like again, I I didn't like dig deep yet to feel the freedom to put my spin on it or do a version of it. So one of the things that I started looking at, well, along with historical cuisine, uh, regional cuisine, and seasonal cooking, and like, you know, holidays and feast cooking was Buddhist cuisine. And the Buddhist cuisine was really interesting to look into in tandem with the historical cooking, because Buddhist cuisine, it's avoiding like five allium-related vegetables that Korean food, almost every dish has. Those are like garlic, onions, leeks, chives, uh, I think there's like one more thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, green onions. Yeah. So if you take that out, then how do you make things more flavorful without those, uh, without those like essential ingredients, like, you know, garlic or onions, those are basic building blocks of the flavor. And, and then when I looked at it, they were using a lot more uh, different spices that you don't see as much in modern Korean cooking, like sancho uh, peppers or, uh, or like um, 
like even cinnamon, you may see cinnamon in like a dessert every once in a while, but you don't see it in regular cooking as much. Um, but you see a lot more use of those uh, spices in like uh, three centuries ago. So I, it was interesting that Buddhist cuisine today was utilizing a lot more of those uh, flavor elements from like historical cooking. So to study them in tandem really piqued my interest. And then when I tasted the food, like I would follow, I would study and look at the cookbooks and then I would create a recipe. And I always try to create it faithfully before I start putting more spin on it. The food was just delicious. Um, and, and it's really essential that you use what's locally available seasonally because the Buddhist, um, they are really concerned about waste and sustainability. So they either forage or or farm themselves or they take donations, but everything is very, very hyper-local and hyper-seasonal. Um, and having worked a little bit with the farmers in Michigan and farmers markets in Michigan, um, it sort of like made sense to me that that was the direction that I want to push toward. And because the recipes are simple in a sense that you're missing all these alliums, um, they rely more on really freshness of the vegetables and the uh, the deepened flavor of fermented sauces like soy sauce or gochujang or denjang and it just tastes amazing and i look around and and what's available in terms of vegetarian and vegan options in in my town and unless it's uh, like indian food or um, unless it's like that it's just a lot of meat substitutes and a lot of it is not as healthy even though people assume like vegan vegetarian is healthy, but a lot of it is like just fried or meat substitutions or lots of like nutritional yeast, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think the drive to go that way is first and foremost, because it is sort of like a, the continuation and a push to looking into Korean cuisine in a specific way. And two, because really, I think, works well with the produce um, that Michigan farmers are making. And then uh, it allows me to buy more from them. Like, I buy from, there are like a, a handful of farmers that I buy consistently from, but there are a lot more farmers that I like to buy more from that I can't because of the size of the restaurant. And I think uh, focusing mostly on vegan food would allow me to do that. And then third, I think it is very a uh, smart business move too because I can buy the most luxurious local vegetable and it would still be cheaper than like mediocre chicken. Yeah, I think the younger folks are really interested in like sustainability for the earth and also the health and the mindfulness of it all. So I think there is a good audience for it. Yeah, it made sense to me that um, uh, like a vegetarian plant-based focused food uh, with lots of flavor being added uh, from the traditional perspective of the fermented uh, sauces um, was the way to go. There are times where I'm prepping chicken, like cases of chicken, and feel like I never want to touch or eat chicken again. And I never, never feel that way about purple cabbage or watermelon <laughs> radish. They're just beautiful. Yeah. And I'm not a, yeah, no, I think I'm not vegetarian or vegan in any sense of the word, but even on a personal level, I eat less and less of meat as, as time goes by. Going back to the basics of just brown rice and vegetables and these things that are just staples, you can't go wrong yeah. there. You know, so as we search for different alternatives in the future, 
when we do run out of, you know, animal proteins, it's still a lot to create these meat substitutes and labs and things like that, you know? So I think you're ahead of the curve yeah. is what I mean to Thank say you. here. <laughs> I think it's good to have those things, but I think you it needs to be balanced out with, I mean, there's like, cuisines with long history of vegan foods like you know that's like centuries of accumulated knowledge we should tap into that because it's just really tasty well and i read that korean monks often see cooking and eating as spiritual as well as physical practices i was trying to research this a little and look into it um they believe that preparing food with a clear mind very intentional so I wanted you to talk about the mind and body connection to the food that we eat. Yeah. I mean, you know, they say that if you cook angry, you can taste it. If you cook with love, you can taste that too. Um, and uh, I want to touch upon the fact that the uh, the Buddhist cuisine does not have the five alliums because it they believe that it has warming facility to that those are food, um, the spicy warming facility, and then that that gets you too excited and it's not good for your meditation. And so, yeah, they really do believe um, like having a a clear mind and having the compassion to make the food and provide for others is uh, an ultimate Buddhist act and, and caring for other people and and the generosity of it. I I think that's really great. I think anybody who's cooked for a loved one can, and can like um, uh, empathize with that where you're like thinking of the person you're cooking and you're putting your whole like time and effort into it. And and that's why sometimes the simplest home cooked meal is better than any elaborate restaurant meal. And I think that goes with it. I don't practice yoga or like mindfulness. You should try having me do like a downward dog. dog. It's kind of hilarious. But when I read um, how like your mindset for preparing the food for other people, it is really like, seeing yourself in the shape of Buddha in terms of like providing compassion and generosity, it made sense to me. And Hmm. yeah. And I also sort of like didn't take that as seriously too, because the Korean Buddhist cooking make uh, ample use of chili flakes. And my, my guess is that it's probably because chili flakes came into United, uh, came into uh, Korea after all these tenants of Buddhist cooking is already established. So the, the, the idea that garlic would be too warming, but not ch- chili peppers are fine. Yeah. So I do take it with a <laughs> grain of salt, but I think this, um, you know, preparing food with love. And I, uh, another thing that I found that I was very fond of was Buddhist cooking before it was Buddhist cooking, it was Buddhist food and Buddhist food was only donated food. So there was, um, this idea of not creating any more waste, right? So they would go around and get donated food, basically leftovers, and eat that. And when they eat, they would pour water over an empty bowl of food after you eat, swish it around, and then they would drink that and there would be your drink. And that is the idea of like not even wasting even like a smear of sauce or like a grain of rice that may have been like left on your bowl. So that living living that i like mindset of being one with the earth and being sustainable uh, that also spoke to me very much i love that what you just described putting water in that bowl swishing that around it's it's like the full circle of that meal absolutely you are truly ending yeah. it wow 
Yeah, mindfulness. Definitely. I see that. And that's and that's not even um, like you said, you're not into yoga, you're not into meditation, things like that, mindfulness, but it it you don't need to be into that to really think about the food that you are putting into your body or taking the time to cook you and, and the sustainability aspect, you, you, you just see it all coming together. I think it's, uh, I think that's really, really cool. I hope that you can get on that path and bring that to Ann Arbor in the coming yeah. years. I mean, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to practice yoga or play uh, like meditation and mindfulness to be intentional about every action you take, even like um, as minor as like what, vessel uh, you're going to use to have a drink of water. Have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? If so, please describe the moment. And this is excluding Rome because that was a mighty big synchronicity, Chef Kim. (laughs) Um, I think, oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I, you know, I, I believe like that you know I don't really ask what if or I I don't like I try not to dwell on regrets or anything so I do feel like things happen for a good reason and I think uh, this uh, being chosen as one of the uh, uh, food and wine best new chefs in 2020 uh, 2021 yeah (laughs) I'm getting the pandemic years mixed Um, I thought that was the moment because um, I wasn't trying to win any awards or anything. I was just trying to survive and focus on bigger things in life than what what's ends up on the menu at a small restaurant out in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're not even in a big city. Uh, because we're not in a big city, I mean, Detroit is an hour away, and I think that's probably the biggest city next to us. Things like uh, rec- recognition, like um, James Beard, or like any kind of like a recognition from a food media, was not even on our consciousness very much. Um, so that wasn't the goal. The that wasn't the vision. Um, our vision for the past year and a half was to survive and keep as many of ourselves safe in the restaurant and also the community. Um, and I think the synchronicity is that that didn't go unnoticed because I, I do think that um, it wasn't just the uh, fried tofu that got us there. I think it was because we were doing those things uh, along with good enough food, because I think that there are a lot of people who does amazing food and who didn't get this recognition. So I thought all those things coming together and, and, and culminating into this recognition that I never like even like, think that was going to happen was the moment. Yeah. It's a great moment. So now I'm going to talk about flow state. So a flow state for people who haven't heard of it is also known as being in the zone. We often hear that a lot, especially like in sports, things like that. It's a mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, and enjoyment, really the key there, in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity. And it's really a euphoric feeling if you're fortunate enough to reach that state. It's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak And there's a sense of happiness that flows through your body. 
I've been in this state. I can get into it if I'll give an example. Like I'm at my restaurant when it's closed and I'm the only one there. And I might be working on new drinks for my menu and music is playing and there are no interruptions, just me, ingredients, and the sounds and beats that I'm vibing out to. And the recipes flow and it never feels like work. And as a chef, I wanted to ask you, Chef Kim, have you ever reached this state while cooking? And if you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it. Was there music playing? Was there incense burning? Could <laughs> just go for a run outside? It could be, who knows? So it just placed me in that moment and then follow up and let me know what it was like being in that state or what it's like being in that state for you. Okay. I mean, it does happen when I'm cooking and it's similar to the example that you used. Um, it usually happens when I'm cooking a feast that just before the pandemic, it was just buffet meal with the whatever menu I came up with that we were doing every other week. Um, but I think more than that, it happens the most often when I'm expediting. So I'm on the expo station. There's no music because... I work with inexperienced cooks. I have to pay every, like, I have to be on like hyper vigilance to make sure that all the food is looking great. But then some things like things start clicking, the tickets are rolling in and, and I'm telling cooks what to make. And then it comes up on time and it's not just me and it's not just the cooks, right? Cause we're, it, it's more, it's more like all of us, the entire line in the kitchen is working as like a one organism and everybody's paying attention to everything. And we're moving like a well-oiled machine. And if we don't, we pick it up and do it again. I would be like, you know, this portion's too small or this is a little burnt, do it again. And then it will come back again. And then it will look better. And then and we get to fix our mistakes. And, and then it starts to feel like you're living a success every single plate. Every single plate that comes up, it's like a success. And then 30 seconds later, another plate, success. Everything looks great. Everybody is keen and we're moving as a team. And it doesn't happen often enough, but when it happens, it feels great. It really does. Oh, I love, I'm more front of house, you know, I'm beverage director, but we're, we have an open kitchen. So my husband's right there and he's a chef and, you know, I'm, I'm managing front of house and looking around and same thing. I get like that when I can look out onto the dining room floor and just see it happening. Oh, it's just such a good feeling. Yeah. Everybody's firing on all cylinders. Everybody's like paying attention to what other people are saying and we're just flowing. Yes. And, and you know what? We both have perspective because I wasn't always in this, in this industry. I came into it later in life like you. So just imagine your old life. <laughs> in an office. How often were you in the flow state when you were in an office setting compared to now? I would say I've been in states where I felt like everything was moving very smoothly. Um, so in that sense, it was like flow state, but there was no joy. So without joy, it was just sort of, mm, everybody did their job today. We did a good job, but it wasn't fun. It still felt like work, even when everything's going smoothly. So I would say uh, lack of joy is really like the most glaringly obvious difference between the flow that I feel when I'm on the expo station versus 
sort of smooth shift that you're having in an office job where you don't care as much about. Yeah. It's truly magical. And those are the moments where I'm reminded, oh, that old life. Oh, you know what? I'm really grateful for the present. Yeah. I'll take a pandemic even, even in a pandemic, even that. It's you so know? funny you said that. My former boss, even after it's been over 10 years, she still calls me like once a year or so and then asks me to come back to come back to her to old industry. And she would throw out these numbers that as a restaurateur in a small town with only one restaurant, you'd never make that money. And I would be like, ooh, for like one second. But then I was just like, I'll hard pass. And during the pandemic, she offered it again. And I was like, I, I actually had to think about it really hard, but then I still hard passed. So I think even though I bitch a lot about the restaurant and the industry and the state that we're in, there is something there that I, on, on a good day, is just so enjoyable. Well, Chef Kim, we are at the end now. We've just flowed right through <laughs> this. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. So for me, it's on the path that we learn, we evolve, we encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. And I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by? I think, um, you know, not being a classically trained cook and looking into all the research and, and experiences that I have had, I think one thing I would ask the listeners would be try to have fun in the kitchen. It's more important for you to have fun and have joy and, and, make food that's delicious to you and the people you care about than being super dogmatic and, and authentic, especially for that authentic words is used a lot for more ethnic cooking. <laughs> that's not Western food. Yeah. Instead of thinking a lot about that, just try to have fun and enjoy yourself. There's just not enough time. And Chef Kim, where can people follow you? Oh, okay. Um, Instagram, uh, Chef Jihei Kim. Or Miss Kim Ann Arbor is where you can find me. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was great having you.